0: you're listening to members of the jury the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice where the passion players and consequences are real each episode we examine current events happening in the system from the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform we bring those stories here to you the members of the jury because we aren't afraid To take it to the box. Welcome back, members of the jury, to another episode. Today, we have a real treat for the audience as we are going to break down a recent trial victory. To break down this trial, we have with us today public defender Alonzo, aka Mr. Take It To The Box himself. Now, Alonzo has been an attorney for three and a half years. And before that, he actually worked as a criminal defense investigator for two years. He has been trained and certified in conducting jury trials by the Trials Lawyer College, which trains and educates lawyers on how to be better advocates. And to date, he's completed 30 jury trials, including both misdemeanors and felony. So, Alonso, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Alonzo, let's kind of get right into it and let's break down this, this recent trial victory. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what the charges were that you were facing?
1: Yes. Uh, my client was on felony probation out of a domestic violence case. That was the felony case. And he picked up a violation of a restraining order. So they, they filed a new case. And it was a misdemeanor case, but they used the misdemeanor charge as the probation violation case.
0: So just to kind of help break this down, basically your client was charged with a new misdemeanor case. And that case was violating a restraining order. And that new misdemeanor allegation could also serve as a felony probation violation.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: So ultimately, with regard to the jury trial, you were looking at a one count uh, complaint for misdemeanor violation of violating a court restraining order. Correct. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So how did this case come to you? and, And, you know, how did it ultimately get on the path to go to trial?
1: After arraignment, I received the case and I was negotiating with the district attorney.
0: My client
1: was not a U.S. citizen, but he was a legal resident. And the reason why I went to trial is because they wouldn't dismiss the misdemeanor, even though my client was willing to serve 180 days in jail on the, prov- on the felony probation violation. They wanted the misdemeanor conviction. However, if my client was convicted of the misdemeanor, he would be the portable because he was a second domestic violence charge, and that would make him deportable. So that's how I ultimately went to trial.
0: Okay, so after you first got the case, obviously you're learning some of that personal information about your client and, and the need just on those personal facts alone as to why you would want to go to To jury trial. Was there anything kind of initially about the police report or some of the preliminary facts that you saw about the case that also led you to go down that path?
1: It wasn't when I received the case. What was very interesting about this case is that my client's ex wife ended up after investing, you know, after I got the case and conducting some investigation on the case and whatnot, I learned that my client's Ex-wife left them to be with one of my clients' employee or formal employee. My client had a landscaping business, and he would invite his employees every Sunday for a barbecue. And one of the one of his employees ended up developing a relationship with, with his wife at the time and ended up leaving him for that employee and that was just very it immediately caught my eye because in my opinion i saw that as a big betrayal that i the jury wasn't gonna like either that it's tough
0: to create a almost a sympathetic victim when your victim is actively engaging in infidelity
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and that right away, I, I saw it as, as something that the jury wasn't gonna like, because it just wasn't. It just smelled. It was one of those things that it just you know it, it caught my attention. I said, you know what, it, this is kind of a, some somewhat of a betrayal.
0: Right. And that's something that you would think obviously could go towards that alleged victim's credibility. Correct. Yes why why would that be important in deciding whether or not you're going to case a t- case to trial
1: well it was important in in this case because the new allegation was th- the new violation of the restraining order was the fact that my client went to to talk to that new husband the ex employee of his these are the
0: these are the allegations these are the factual allegations behind the new misdemeanor trial
1: correct so what I what my, what I learned is that my client my client wanted to have a conversation with the new husband and that's why he went to the house
0: okay so obviously at some point in time client and girlfriend or wife separate and you know they have this case they have this implementation of of a, of a restraining order. And your client comes to learn that after he's separated from his wife, his former employee is now, in fact, going forward with that kind of infidelity and now in a full-blown relationship. Yes. Okay. And so why the fact that your client went to go talk to now the new significant other of the alleged victim, why would that be uh, alleged as a violation?
1: Well, so because at the time, what I learned throughout this at the beginning of this trial is that that so yes, yeah, so so my client obviously is no longer with the ex-wife. They separated. They went their separate ways. There is a restraining order where my client cannot have any contact with his ex-wife, but now ex-wife is married to this employee, and they live in a in a separate um, apartment. Wife moves in with that ex-employee, and they're in this house, and my client wants to go confront new husband.
0: Okay, and I think it's really, I think that's a really cool, that's a really important part to kind of highlight, because just so our audience is aware that most restraining orders across across the country, no matter where you are, are going to have some of the same universal language. And that's uh, that if you are served with a restraining order, you're going to be prohibited from having any contact, communication, or visitation with whoever the court has deemed to be the protected party. That means you can't text them, call them, go within normally 100 yards of them um, to ensure that there is no violation. And there's very specific addresses and people who are identified in these protective orders because they can't be super ambiguous and encapsulate more people or areas than they need to be.
1: Yes, that is correct. You said it best. Like, it, 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 it they have to be very specific to the person, to their address, to how many, you know, usually it's 100 yards, but it, they have to be very, very specific to in order for them to be valid and enforceable. And this particular restraining order applied only to the wife, not the husband. And it didn't apply to their new address as well. Applied to her, but not to the new address.
0: Okay, so the restrict, the protective order that client was ultimately served with and had to abide said that he was forbidden from knowingly having any contact, communication, or visitations with the ex-wife who was the protected party, and that he was forbidden within going within a hundred yards of her known address.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: But that address that was listed on the restraining order was not the address of the new boyfriend.
1: So the interesting part about this restraining order is that it had no address. There, It didn't list an address. It just said the victim's home, which was very, which very open to interpretation, but it had no address.
0: So when you were looking through the police report, was there any indication in the police report as to what the violation was? Was it a, the, an allegation of him being within a certain amount of feet? Was there actual allegation of, you know communication with the protected party what was kind of the conduct that was ultimately alleged to serve as the violation
1: that's a very good question the conduct was that my client went to the ex-wife's new home he knocks on the door and the wife comes to the door to answer the door And she allegedly had a conversation with him through the door. The door was never open, but she says, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. And then that's when she calls 911 to report that he, my client, had just been at the door, knocking on the door, and that she had a conversation with him. That she said, he's outside my door He's here. He's not supposed to be here. That were those were the facts that the, that the prosecutor was alleging.
0: In, in the police report, was there any kind of specific allegation? I know you you mentioned that she was saying that she had a conversation with him through the door. Was there any specific, I guess, testimony of what he was saying, or was it really just one sided as to what she was saying?
1: In in the police report on the on the Uh, a body-worn camera that was captured from the officer that took her testimony, she basically was saying that my client knocked on the door and said, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to, I need to talk to your, you know, the new husband. Uh, And they had that back and forth. At least that's what she said, that they had a little back and forth through the door.
0: Okay, so you get this client who has basically LPR status and could face potential deportation if if convicted of this crime. And you're reading this police report of a potential violation of a restraining order where there is no protected address. And you tell yourself, okay, based on these discrepancies, one, we have to go to trial, obviously, because a potential conviction could lead to deportation. And two, there are some triable issues. So you tell yourself and your client agrees, okay, we're going to take this case to trial. What happens next? Is there an investigation period? And if so, what goes into that investigation?
1: Yes. So there is an investigation period. And and here in my office, we're lucky enough that we do have uh, investigators. We have an investigating unit. Uh, So we are able to put in a request and uh, our investigators go to try to interview the witness the victims in this case or whatever, take photos or whatnot. And in this case, basically what happened is they just confirm the statements that the that the victim had in fact talked to my client on that day outside her apartment. Basically the victim confirmed everything that was said on the police report.
0: So your investigation ultimately confirmed your original
1: like my suspicion, like
0: yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking to say. Okay. Okay, so you've done your own kind of preliminary investigation and then you had that supported by your you know, your your agency's investigation, and now you have everything that you need ready to go to trial. And you're getting to go to trial. Were there any preliminary issues that you needed to have a motion to potentially suppress or to not allow it to get into evidence?
1: I was the the only evidentiary issue that we had uh, going into trial was the fact that new husband was in jail and he was going to come in to testify from a federal detention facility and he was going to come in, into court in orange jail suit in an orange jail suit and I wanted to cross-examine him on why he was in jail.
0: So when you said, obviously you said cross-examination, and so it was the prosecution's office who was trying to call this guy as a witness.
1: That is correct, because, uh, so what I forgot to mention is when, when wife is answering the door saying, you know, you were, you're, not supposed to hear, you're not supposed to be here, new husband is in the room with her. and new husband is the one that says, who's that? Oh, it's 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 your ex ex husband. Then we're gonna call the cops. So new husband was an eyewitness as well. A new husband, her, the conversation that the wife had with my client when he was outside the door.
0: So the prosecution want to call this guy who's in federal detention center to support the fact that one, your client was there, and two, that he did quote unquote communicate with the protected party, which would then uh, rise to the level of a violation. Correct.
1: Okay. Yes, it was going to be one of their eyewitnesses to corroborate their story. And,
0: And obviously, as a defense attorney, you know, credibility of a witness is always at issue, and if not the number one thing. And so, you know, if he was going to be testifying, you were trying to ask the judge that if he was going to be testifying that you had you would be allowed some wiggle room to get into those kind of issues, right? Especially if he was potentially in custody uh, for a reason that went towards his trustworthiness.
1: Absolutely. I wanted to get into why he was in jail to begin with, why he was arrested and and all that, because all of that, in my opinion, goes to his credibility.
0: And and I I mean, I don't know the answer. I kind of have an idea, uh, just given the nature of what we do. But how did that uh, ruling go for you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well I think your suspicions are correct the, the judge denied my motion and said you're not allowed to go into that you're not allowed to cross him at all into that no you know so and I thought I mean I, I almost lost my mind I was like I I, I mean how, you know like you said credibility is that it, it's a issue. is the biggest the number one thing for witnesses and I'm not even not able to get into you know, so that was the biggest evidentiary issue argument that we had.
0: So we we resolve all of our pretrial motions and evidentiary issues, and we're we're starting the trial, right? And as we know, the first part of the trial is the jury selection, which is also known as voir dire. What was something that you were focused on in, in this voir dire for this jury's process?
1: In this voir dire, what I was focused on, because it's a domestic violence case, I was focused on the negative reaction that the, the prospective jurors were going to have. When they would learn, when they would hear the judge say, members of the jury, welcome to department whatever seven, uh, this is a domestic violence trial. Because domestically domestic violence cases have this emotional content that just triggers people and moves people because because it reminds them of personal experiences.
0: And so even though this case didn't necessarily involve a specific allegation of domestic violence, because it fell falls under that umbrella of a domestic violence case, because that's why the protective order was issued, you still approached it with the same level of sensitivity.
1: Absolutely. Uh, because I... My... Perception of the case was confirmed because as soon as the judge read the charges, one juror raised his hand and said, I can't be in this. I can't be part of this. This is too emotional for me. And because, again, because the the jury doesn't know anything about the case. And when when, in my experience with the jurors hear the charges, they just imagine the worst thing that could potentially happen. Uh, you know, and, and once the trial go, goes on, uh, they discover that it's not as bad as they thought. But originally, they don't know that. And a lot of people, a lot of jurors start volunteering information because it triggers something that happened to them in the past. And, and whether when it's, you know, sexual cases or domestic violence or, or even DUIs, it just has this tone of it triggers people and some of them are not going to like this case, even though there was no violence or physical beating, like you said.
0: You know, sometimes I think actually just it, it almost can be worse because depending on what kind of evidence does or doesn't come out, I think your jurors can get completely distracted as to, you know, not even asking themselves whether or not the the restraining order was violated but more so trying to piece together as to why it was there in the first place and you know uh, kind of think of other alternatives of like that so I definitely understand how that could be a challenging voir dire. you know now in the voir dire process each side is elected certain challenges and, and reasons to remove potential jurors in this case do you recall if you exercise any of those challenges
1: I believe I I use all of mine if not close to it. I, I think I have five and I use four. I may have used four, yeah.
0: Now, it, you know, just kind of a quick detour in, in your experience of doing, you know, 30 jury trials. Has it been your practice to utilize challenges pretty often?
1: It depends on the case and, depends, and it depends on how the communication that I have with the jurors. Sometimes, Sometimes I have used maybe three and sometimes I've used all of them. So it just depends on on how I feel that uh, you know the 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 connection that I've established with certain jurors, and 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 that that's what I so I don't have I don't to answer I guess to answer your question I don't have a bright a rule that I that I have that I I I have to use all all my challenges or it it, it all depends
0: oh it just based it on the gut feeling
1: right yes yes
0: makes sense I like that strategy too. OK, so taking us back to the trial, um, we've completed jury selection and, and now we're moving into what's called the prosecution's case in chief, where they basically are putting on their witnesses and we enter into the realm of a defense attorney's bread and butter or what should be their bread and butter. And that's cross exam. Um, you know, how did you feel that the cross exams in this case went? Do you think that, you know, they were influential into the outcome?
1: So it was a very interesting uh Case in the sense that when we start evidence, the this, the prosecutor says, "I am only calling one witness, Your Honor," and they decide to only call. Actually, two witnesses. They decide. The prosecutor decided to only call uh, the main victim, the ex-wife, and one detective. They decided probably because they realized, you know, where I was going to go. They decided not to call the new husband who was in federal prison, who was, who was going to come in to testify wearing his jail attire. They decided not to pursue that route. So really there was only one witness, which was the victim. Now, be like I, I know we're cross-examination, but I just want to if we can go back to voidir because I just I just want to say something uh about this particular void dire, because I've never I have never had something like this happen during one of my voidirs. Um is that okay with you? Of course, of course. Okay. So so in this particular case again, uh, at the very, you know, it was it was just like clockwork. I mean, the, the domestic violence cases have very, again, like it, it, they generate a lot of emotional content in the trial, and usually that's negative energy for us. And you can just feel it that people are uncomfortable. Jurors are sitting there uncomfortable, judging at your at your client, judging at you because of the the nature of the charges. The moment the judge reads the charges there was an older Filipino man who raised his hand and said, I cannot be here. And he became so emotional that was literally fighting tears back and couldn't speak. And I believe he was juror number 27, but he, was, but he wasn't he was in the 12 box, but he was towards the back. And he said, if this is domestic violence, I cannot be here because when I was a child my father would beat up my mom in front of me. And this reminds me of that time when I was a child and my dad would beat up my mom in front of me. And when he's saying that, he's looking down, he's saying it very slowly and his voice is shaking because he's fighting back tears. And you could sense, I could feel this man's emotion, right? And the pain that he's going through. You could see that by hearing these charges, he went, traveled back in time and actually became that child in that room. You could see that at that moment, he wasn't that older businessman, but he was a child reliving that story, right? When that happened, you know, a lot of Attorneys want to stay away from that juror, never touch him, never talk to him, because you know he's going to be gone, right? But what I have learned through going to the, you know, trialers coach I know what I've what I have learned is that to take advantage of that juror and that moment, because it is a gift for us, and I and and, and I'm gonna so. What I saw that, you know, I I was able to connect to what he was feeling because I could sense his pain. So when I got up and I didn't have this prepared, this was, this was just something that I was able to develop because I tapped into what he said.
0: Yeah, something that just developed on the fly.
1: Right. So when I got up, I looked at the jury and there was a woman, juror number seven in the Box who had also told me I have called the police on my husband because he's beat me three times. Anyways, so when I when I got up, I I looked at the I, I looked at the Filipino man and I and I looked at the jury and I said, you know, some of us go through life thinking that the wounds that we have in our heart have healed. But then we come to a place like this and we experience something like this, we watch a movie, we read a book, or something triggers us that takes us back to that household. And there we are back in that household. And we realize that the wounds that we carry in our hearts have not healed. And we realize that those wounds all of a sudden are bleeding. And that is the emotional content of domestic violence cases that keeps me up at night. And I looked at the woman in the jewelry box and I said, I am going to ask you to do something that's against human nature, which is to set aside those emotions. Can you do that? And she looked at me and she nodded and she said, yes. And I kept her in the box. She was one of my jurors. Wow. I, when I was done saying that, I could feel the energy in the room change. And there wasn't the the Filipino man and what happened to him. It wasn't any more sort of like a sad moment, but it was a moment for everybody to understand and acknowledge what he was going through.
0: One hundred percent. Sometimes the voir dire process can really make or break your case, especially because sometimes jurors who ultimately aren't ever going to even come close to getting into the box are able to influence, you know, the rest of the gallery based on a personal experience or story that they had. And so that just sounds like what an incredible story to overcome, especially which could have been so devastating, um, given all of the circumstances. You know, you, you know. Fortunately, it sounds like that the rest of that gallery, you know, didn't connect or not necessarily connect, but feel or have the same emotional uh, connection to the cases that, that, that one individual juror who did, who spoke up.
1: Right. And then, and then after I was done with that portion, you could feel the room, the tension was gone a little bit and the people started opening up more and people were willing to share more of their experiences. And, and, you know, it was sort of like, the moment you show you showed some jurors a little bit of sympathy, as opposed to you start cross-examining them, the panel opens up more. And, and I believe that the reason for that is because you are making the room comfortable enough for them to open up to you, which is one of our duties as lawyers to come in and make the room comfortable for them to speak up. And we do that not by saying, well do, don't you understand that the presumption of innocence and yada yada and start attacking them, but by showing them a little bit of sympathy that's going to touch not only that juror but the juror sitting around that juror and it opens up the room. So anyways, that's, that that was my voir year part and, and, and I truly felt, you know believe it or not, I, I, like I was paying attention to the reaction and the energy just in the room changed. And it just it became more of like a conversation, and 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 by the time I was done, and by the time I started my openings and whatever, I felt very comfortable with the people that ended up in the box.
0: And having a great feeling about ultimately who your what jury ends up in your box, I think sets such such an important tone for how a trial is going to go. You know, I want to take you back though to to cross examination, and you, and you pretty much said that all all the prosecution did was put up the witnesses or the main protected party and a cop. And so there wasn't really many points kind of of adversary. What'd you do? Just pretty much confirm kind of the key points that you knew ultimately you were going to have to argue in closing?
1: So the prosecutor, yes, a little bit, but uh, the prosecutor puts the victim, the victim, her testimony was actually pretty favorable to my case, meaning When the ex-wife is on the stand, she doesn't say that she has a conversation with my client. She basically says, "Client knocks, knocks on the door, then he turns around and leaves." Doesn't say anything about having the back and forth. And I think because the prosecutor forgot to impeach her on it with the officer and the the police report and the body worn cameras, I don't know why, but the prosecutor didn't go into. Uh, getting more of that testimony from the victim.
0: And that sounds like it would be super key because obviously now, you know, essentially what it sounded like or what you would be able to anticipate was that, You know, a prosecutor could have argued that, you know, even though they're only charging one violation, that there was multiple, whether it be his presence and or communication. But if the if the alleged victim never actually testified at trial that there was any communication, well, now that there's less of an argument for the prosecution to make. Right.
1: Exactly. So I I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what happened. I don't know if she forgot or it was a strategy but she doesn't she didn't elicit that statement from the from the ex-wife so as soon as the prosecutor sat down i you know i have this is the first time i've done this in all my trials i've never done this especially with the key witness with the main victim victim of a trial i did not cross examine her at all
0: wow no cross examination
1: nothing the judge looked at me and said defense counsel cross-examination and I said, no, thank you, Your Honor. No questions for this witness. And, and I had, you know, number one, I didn't want to give the chance. I didn't want the prosecutor to give her a chance to fix the, the testimony. Uh, and I felt very comfortable that what the, what the victim had testified was actually beneficial for me and my case. So at that moment, I just I just said, Your Honor, no, no questions for this, this witness. Wow, it's the first time I've done it. And I was a little bit, you know, afterwards, I was like, man, did I do the right call? And it's not but, but it turned out I did. It turns out that I did.
0: <laughs> yeah, what a what a what a risky play. What a very risky play. So you ultimately didn't do any cross examination on the main witness. And you know, obviously, I anticipate the, the officer's Testimony went rather smoothly unless you had any, you know, were there any moments of impeachment or um, issues with the officer?
1: The detective showed up. He basically testified this is a valid court order. It was issued by a judge. It was issued on this day. The only thing that that the detective confirmed for me was that there was no physical address, that my client was only um, prohibited from reaching out to the ex-wife the person, but, but there wasn't a, a, a physical address for him to stay away from.
0: And that was a point that you had to point up. That was a point that you made on cross-examination.
1: Yes. With the detective and he did He he said, yeah, there is no address on here. It's the only issue against the, the, the wife. And then that's it. That, that was the extent of my cross and the extent of the trial.
0: So you didn't put on any kind of evidence in this case? No, that was it. No client testified.
1: In my opening statement, I I told the jury my client was going to testify because I needed him to testify. I needed him to explain why he was there, and I actually over I ended up over promising all that in opening. I said my client is going to tell you that 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 he went to the to the this house and is not. By the end of because of the two witnesses and by the, 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 the way the evidence was presented by the prosecutor, I just I just told my client, you know, I have a very good feeling about this. Let's just not let's just rest. And that's what I did. We, we rested.
0: Wow. OK. And so, so take us to the closing. You know, what ultimately did you say that in closing arguments,
1: In closing arguments? I just pointed out the fact that my client was issued a restraining order out of the original felony case that originated when my client and his wife lived at their old house. And when that order was issued, it was issued with the understanding that he couldn't go back to their original home because that's where it, 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 the order was issued. And I put two chairs in the well of the courtroom court to indicate the two different homes. One, Use Because I, I like to use props in the courtroom to help the jury visualize and, and, and help it. And, and I feel like it's more organic when you can grab a chair or something from the courtroom as opposed to some fancy, you know, like like clipboard or whatever. Um, so I put two chairs in the well of the room of the in the well of the courtroom to one to point to show the jurors where the original court order was originally was issued. And the second chair was to show where my client went to confront the ex husband. Now, here's the thing that I, that I, that I, the reason why I I told them that my client went to confront the new husband, new husband hit my client's child, children. He would physically hit them. So my client went to that house to tell them, to confront them about that, and my client was going to tell ex-husband, "If you put, if you touch my kids again, you're going to have to deal with me." So, so, but that never came in. You know, that never came in. Even though I argued that in opening, I couldn't argue it in closing because it didn't come in. But then I said that I said my client went to this house not to see the wife, but he went to this house to talk to the new husband. And now, new husband is not even didn't even come in to testify. Which the prosecutor promised them. The prosecutor also overpromised in their in their in their case in chief, saying, "You're gonna hear new husband come in and testify. You're gonna hear new husband say this." Turns out, they never brought new husband because new husband new husband is in jail, and he would have been testifying in his in his you know prison, uh, suit federal prison suit. So you and the
0: prosecutor you, you and the prosecutor both overpromised a little bit in your openings.
1: We both overpromised, and and I think I was very afraid that the jurors were going to punish my client for me overpromising so much, and at the end changing the strategy of not putting my client on. But I, again, I think that the all the older testimony that that came in was beneficial for me, and I and I ended up I did not want my client to testify. And again, uh, I just said that look, my client didn't know that my, they knew that this is the new address my client knew the new husband lived there because he was an employee of him but they, he didn't know that my that my that his ex-wife was there and somehow they agree with me and they came back with a not guilty verdict
0: hey hey congratulations how long how long were they out for how long did they deliberate
1: i want to say half a day it was it was it wasn't it was somewhat of a quick one. It was a half a day, and the interesting part is when we're walking as we're walking into the courtroom to get the verdict. The prosecutor looks at me and says, "I am going to ask for immediate sentencing," because she thought she won and she was going to ask for immediate sentencing, and my client was going to go to jail for sure because he was. He was on It was going to be a felony probation violation. But
0: ultimately, they were not able to prove that your client, you know, had any kind of contact, communication, or went to a, a restricted, you know, address. Well, exactly. Well done, Alonzo. That's such a, you know, such a simplistic factual, factual circumstance, but has such major impact and magnitude. I mean, as you said, you know, a simple kind of, you know, even if it is a technicality that there was no, prote- you know, specific address. And even if there was, and it sounds like in this case, it would have been a different address initially. But the fact that he was facing deportation when most people think, oh, I'll just call the police and it could be a simple misdemeanor, you know, that's so fortunate to have an advocate assigned uh, to his case as you and, you know, one with such, you know, great trial advocacy skills. You know, I just want to end on on one quick note, you know, one of the things that we like to do here at members of the jury is ask our trial attorneys, you know, what what is the importance of taking it to the box to you?
1: Wow, that's a very important question. I've never this a, I think this is the first time somebody asked me that. To me, I mean it means a lot of things. One that I am going to fight for my client all the way till the end. Even if I know that I am going to lose in trial, I know that sometimes my clients have a background that nobody has ever fought for them. Our clients come from backgrounds where they've experienced a lot of abandonment, a lot of loneliness, a lot of powerlessness, and just a lot of um, despair and helplessness. And me taking it to the box allows me to Stand up for them because sometimes nobody has done that for them their entire lives. And we're dealing with adults sometimes, you know, and and that have been living their entire adult life the same way. And for me, that gives me an opportunity to show them that they are not alone, that I am going to fight for them. And ultimately, that in some cases, are winnable even though the prosecutor thinks it's a slamdong case, the judge thinks it's a slamdown case, they do not see where the where the defense attorney is going to create an emotional story that is going to resonate with the jurors. And that's our greatest weapon, I think, that we have the advantage of coming of of discovering the universal truth that is going to connect my client's story with the jurors' stories or past experiences, that they're going to relate to my client and that they're going to help my client and find him not guilty. The prosecutors are unable, luckily are unable to see that and luckily don't have the skills to discover the emotional content that we're going to use to win the case, uh, you know, and, and and that's why I take it to trial because I I've been lucky enough to be trained to to prepare cases to learn those emotional stories, universal truths that the jurors can hold on to. For example, in my case, I said I, I emphasize a lot that my client was a good father, and he he may have not been a good a, a good husband but he was a good father and that's why he was there to protect the children and I think that everybody will root for that. I think people universally will root for a good father you know they, they and they may for, and they they're willing to forgive somebody for their mis- their, their mistakes as long as they can see the, the qualities of a good father and I think I painted the picture enough with the little bit of evidence that I had, at least my client was a good father.
0: Well, I think the jury would agree, you know, obviously between that and, and, you know, the lack of evidence, it sounds like that was presented. That's why they came back with a not guilty verdict. Well, Alonzo, thank you so much for coming onto the show, uh, sharing your story. We hope that, you know, in the future you're, you're able to have more successes and you're willing to come back on the show and share them.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And, uh, it's, it's an honor that you that you invited me here uh, to your podcast and uh, to these members of the jury podcast. And I, I feel very lucky and privileged to be able to talk to you and share my, my experience and my, my, my trial.
0: Well, members of the jury, that's our show. And I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at Members of the Jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws or to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.